0: Children are dismissed to children's church, and adults are dismissed to adult church. Just don't go home. We're not done yet. If you want to come to the lunch that we're having on March 6th, you do have to sign up though. Joyce needs to know how many people she's cooking for, because if she cooks for 30 and 60 show up, you can't pour that much water in the soup. So, you have to sign up. The sign-up sheet is on the office counter, so make sure you sign up. Before we open God's Word this morning, I just want to to lead us in a prayer of asking the Holy Spirit to show us what we can learn from God's Word, and then together we're going to read John 9. So, if you'd like to join me in prayer, let's pray. Father in heaven... As we turn to your word, Lord Jesus, and open it, I pray that the Spirit of truth would lead us, Lord, into a better understanding of this relationship that we have with you, of your role in this relationship as our King and as our Lord. And for the way that you lived and the way that you would have us live, that this scripture would apply to our lives here in this moment, at this time, and that you'd show us, Lord Jesus. Show us how 2,000 years hasn't changed the way that you love us and the way that you'd have us live in this world. So I pray that these things would rise to our minds, Lord Jesus, that we would see them and feel them impressed on our hearts by your spirit as we go through this scripture this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I think that's so important as you read scripture just to have a heart that is prepared and that's ready for it. I was listening to another pastor preach the other day on a podcast and I was thoroughly enjoying it and one thing he said is that a lot of people have been asking him why he doesn't talk more about current events in the sermons that he preaches. Why don't his sermons come back to what's going on in the news? What are his thoughts and opinions, and why doesn't he share it when he has the chance to? And this pastor, in his sermon, said that's a wrestling match, to know how to handle God's word, to teach it well, to show to people how it does apply to each moment that we're living in. It applies to the days that we live in. I think preaching through the Gospel of John couldn't have come at a better time. And why? It's because of this. John reveals the heart of Jesus, reveals the identity of Jesus. And I think when I look at what's going on in the world, and I have to decide how I will respond, because the only person I can control is me. I look back at the way Jesus lived and the way he spoke, the way he loved people that he agreed with and disagreed with, the way he taught his disciples, and the way he loved them and showed them grace the way he spoke to Pharisees, the way he spoke to the commoners, his submission and his humility and his determination, his love for spiritual freedom, and eyes being opened. And as I decide how to live my life, how to feel, this is the lens that I interpret that through. So, I hope that as we teach you more and more as we go through John together, and I'm sure you've all read it before, and I hope that as we read it together, it's better clarifying the lens that you look at the world through. You know, when I read that post, what would Jesus think of that? When I talk to this person I disagree with, how would Jesus speak to that person? When I'm struggling with fear, with anxiety, or with anger, how did the Lord channel that? How did he feel that? How did he express that? Because our world does fit into the scripture. Because Jesus came down and entered our world. My hope is that you see that in John 9 this morning as we read through it. Now Mr. Scott led us in a sermon last week through the beginning of John 9. The healing of a man who was born what? That's right. Hadn't seen once in his entire life. Jesus encountered him, spit on the ground, made mud, placed it on his eyes, said to go wash. But there's a deeper story. There's a long conversation with the Pharisees about a spiritual eye-opening that this morning we're going to see. Let's read this story. We're going to start at verse 1, and Scott went up to verse 12. We're going to continue on past verse 12 into the rest of the story, but let's start at the very beginning. So if you have your Bibles, this is chapter 9 of the Gospel of John. It says this. As he, that's Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed came home, seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, they asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself, he insisted, I am the man. How then, were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son. The parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. But now... I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him, and they said, Ha, you, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this. And they asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. As you are reading through this, as you're doing your devotional time and you're looking into the scripture that John recorded and how it's passed on to us, different things are going to pop out of the story. Different characters are going to stand out to you. I want to point some out to you as we go through it together. So let's take a look, starting at the very beginning and then quickly moving to 13. So this is Jesus following chapter 7 and 8, where he just revealed his identity in a week-long teaching spree at the Festival of Tabernacles. So as he went along, this is past this event now, he sees a man blind from birth, and Jesus chooses to intervene. This gentleman does not ask for help, but Jesus steps in. And we later understand that this becomes a physical demonstration of the reality that Jesus has been teaching. Up to this point, Jesus' identity has been just a teaching from him, and now this is a physical act to reveal it. They're asking about sin. Who sinned? This man or his parents? But it's not connected to his sin. The pain that this gentleman is in isn't connected to either of their actions. But God is going to do something incredible through it. God, through Jesus, interacts with the dirt on the ground. When's the last time that we saw the Creator... Interact with the dust on the ground and perform something life giving. It's interesting that that's similar between Yahweh who breathes into the dust and out comes life, Jesus spits into the dust and out comes healing. He tells him to go to the Pool of Siloam. That's a pool on the south side of the temple, that's a cleansing pool. That's where people who are coming for a festival, like the Festival of Tabernacles, would have went and they would have ceremonially washed themselves, become clean. And then they would have been appropriate, they would have been cleansed enough to enter into the temple and now worship. So this was a pool where people were made clean before they encountered the living God. And Jesus sends him to go be made clean in this pool. Now when the gentleman comes back, the crowd is split some believing his identity as the formerly blind man and others not revealing his identity. Which harkens right back to chapter 7 and 8 where the whole crowd was split over the identity of Jesus. People couldn't agree even though something miraculous had happened. So where we step into verse 13 today, they take him to the Pharisees. we notice that two different Sabbath violations have taken place. Do you notice the distinction there with the word and? You see in verse 14, the day on which Jesus made the mud and the day on which Jesus opened the man's eyes. I didn't know this, but spitting in the dirt and kneading it, making mud, kneading it. That was working on the Sabbath. You were working. You weren't allowed to knead on the Sabbath. So Jesus broke Sabbath law by making mud, and by performing a healing. This is two Sabbath violations. Now this compounds on top of when Jesus healed the gentleman at the pool who couldn't walk. That was also done on a Sabbath in chapter 5. Here's the kicker. Healing a man born blind was an act of God and God alone. It wasn't an act of a healer. It was an act of God. The Jews firmly believed that certain miracles were reserved for the Messiah, for the Son of Man. And we'll get to that title in a minute. Things like resurrecting someone after three days when their spirit had left, only the Messiah. Being able to remove a demon, you never even heard the demon's name, so the person was mute, only the Messiah. Things like healing a defect that had been a part of someone like blindness from the day they were born. It was going to take the creator to undo that creation, the Messiah. So here's where we're left. Jesus has either done a miracle confirming chapters 7 and 8 that he is who he claims to be the light of the world, God sent down, tabernacling among us. He either is or he, he's a Sabbath violator who's lying about being God who needs to be killed. He's one or the other. But that doesn't fit in their world. Why doesn't he treat God's law with respect? Why does he do what he does? Why would he need this mud? Why would he heal this man? Why wouldn't he wait a day? Wouldn't that honor God? So on one hand, undeniable evidence of who he is. And on the other hand, treachery, blasphemy, So it's split the crowd right down the middle. That's why the Pharisees keep asking things like, how did this happen? How did this happen? They are looking, as we can read into the story, they're looking for a way that Jesus could have done this and not have had to be the Messiah. A way that he could have manipulated the situation. How, they ask. Did he really give you back your sight? Did he correct your sight a little bit? Was the gentleman really blind? Because if they can prove the gentleman wasn't really blind from birth, then this miracle loses its intensity, it loses its significance. If they can prove that Jesus manipulated the situation, that he isn't really a healer, he's a deceiver, then they can win the argument, they can win the day. But if the miracle is genuine, and if the man was blind from birth in a genuine way, it's undeniable They need to know. Even the Pharisees, look at verse 16 and 17. They're divided on who Jesus is. On one hand, he's Messiah. On the other hand, he's Sabbath violator. And in what might be the great turn of events in verse 17, they ask the blind man for his opinion. He was a beggar. He sat... And he begged for cash. He was this useless, steeped-in-sin individual. Please, money. There's nothing I can do. Money, please. And people would spit on him, and they'd walk past him. He's not going to be testifying to the identity of the Messiah before the Pharisees. And now they've come to a point where they need to ask him, what do you say, sir? What's your testimony about Jesus? And he says he's a prophet. God is speaking through him. He does the words of God. He's a prophet. He doesn't claim he's Messiah. He doesn't claim he's the anointed one, the king. He says he's a prophet. He's encountered something that came from God. This man speaks God's words. They bring in the parents. They asked the parents, is this truly your son? Was he truly born blind? We need to know. This changes everything. Was he really? And the parents confirmed, yes, he was. Yes, he is. That's verse 20. We know he's our son. We know he was born blind. But watch the change in their tone in verse 21. But how he can see now, who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. Just ask him. He's of age. He'll speak. Ask him. And you'll go, okay, well, the parents weren't there at the healing. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they've never met Jesus. They've never seen him. It's fine. They don't have the information necessary. And then you read the next verse. They were afraid. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah, would be put out of the synagogue. Now, this resonates with people. Remember, who's reading this letter? It's not Jesus, and it's not the disciples. This letter, written 20, 30, 40 years later, is for the next generation of people who John is trying to compel into believing in Jesus as the anointed one. Because he believes that only in Jesus will you find life and freedom. Slavery to sin, your slavery, your chains broken by Jesus, only in him. So he's compelling the next generation to believe in Jesus and find life. But there's a challenge to believing in Jesus. And it's the fear of losing everything. Being put out of the synagogue being put out of your family, your rabbi not talking to you anymore? What would come by acknowledging this false messiah that they claim Jesus is? What would that mean for a Jewish person to believe in? And John acknowledges that clearly in this story, and the other disciples and the other gospel writers don't even record that. They were afraid too. That if they acknowledge him, it changes everything. And if they don't acknowledge him, the parents can leave scot-free. How will that fear influence you and influence me? Now, here's a hermeneutic uh, tip for you as you're reading through the Bible the way that we're reading through it. Look for the chiastic structures. Look for the way the story builds to the center. This story, I just read the whole chapter, right? You heard it. Jesus meets with the man. The man is put on trial. The man's parents are brought in. The man is put on trial. Jesus meets with the man. The story is built mirroring stage one, stage two to the center of the story. And when a Jewish, when a historian with a Hebrew background Includes a chiastic structure. Ask yourself, what did he place at the center of his chiastic structure? The whole book of Leviticus is written like this. Look at what it's pointing to. It's a mirror. And the mirror is the parent's reaction. It's the center of the story. But they're not involved in this. They're not Jesus. They're not the blind. They're not even the Pharisees. Why are they the center of the story? Because they encountered The divine and fear kept them back, kept their eyes closed. A second time, they interrogate the poor blind man. They bring him in. They say, Give glory to God, not to this sinner. Acknowledge what God has done, not this Jesus. And the man says, I I really don't know. Is he a sinner? Is he not a sinner? I haven't interrogated Jesus. I just don't know. The blind man, is he sitting there in his rags? I don't know. But you want to know something I do know? I can tell you something. These didn't work yesterday. And these work fine now. What else do you want? And the Pharisees are asking him, no, 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 comment on the identity of Jesus. No, comment on his identity. Like, who do you think? Do you know his background, his lineage? Which rabbi trained him? Do you have any clue? Tell us, we need to know. And the blind man sitting there in his rags, Guys, I don't know. But these work. That's pretty wild, don't you think? Don't you think? They're completely missing it. They're completely missing it. There's proof of the identity of Jesus in their midst. They won't even look at his eyes. The funniest part of the whole story is this section. Do you want to become a follower of Jesus or don't you? Why? Because they ask him again. How did this miracle really happen? Walk us through it step by step. They're interrogating him. We want to know. Did Jesus manipulate the situation? Tell us the truth. And that guy goes, why? You want to be his follower, do you? Hmm. Isn't that odd? Pharisees, followers of Jesus. And they strike back at him. We're followers of Moses. Do you know why? We have proof. God spoke to Moses. That's undeniable. This other gentleman, this Jesus you speak of, there's no proof of that. We follow Moses. We have evidence of that. Evidence of that. This Jesus, no evidence at all. We don't even know. And the man is looking them in the eyes. We don't know where Jesus comes from. We don't know if he has any connection to God. We don't know where he comes from. But Moses, we know where he comes from. We know he spoke with God. Verse 30. I'm reading from the NIV. If you're reading from different translation, I wonder what yours says. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. Do you have a different translation? Does it say something different than that? Like that's very strange. No, that's very strange. <laughs> that's good. Uh, here's an amazing thing. I love that there's an exclamation mark. <laughs> the blind man, right? The beggar. The former blind man is sitting in the midst of a council of Pharisees. And he goes, well, isn't this strange? We have evidence of the Messiah in our midst. And you're all blind. Ha! How the tables have turned. And he's looking at them. Isn't this remarkable? You don't know where he comes from. And yet God doesn't work through sinners. God worked through this man, so God is using him, so he's not a sinner. Hmm, okay. The case is airtight. All of you are blind. Isn't this remarkable? So you have this, the audacity, the audacity of someone who was begging the day previous, sitting in their, in their own filth. I don't know, like, this is an outcast. And the outcast is now in the presence of the Pharisees, lecturing them on the coming of the Messiah. And he responds by, isn't that strange? Isn't this remarkable? I have become the teacher of Israel. I'm the only one who can see. I'm in the presence of blind people. Isn't this remarkable? Isn't this strange? (laughs) the man gets it the man completely gets it verse 33 if jesus was not from god he could do nothing no one has ever heard this is verse 32 no one's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind it's never happened before this is a unique situation that's never in history before this been replicated this isn't debatable It wasn't like he had a sore on his leg and Jesus spit on his sore, and then a couple days later, the sore was gone. You might look at that and go, Whoa, Jesus is powerful. Or you might look at that and go, Wow, sores go away after a few days. Isn't that cool? Like it would be deniable. He's like, Guys, I was born blind. My mom and dad stood in here, they told you, I was born blind. I can see all of you. What more do you want? What more do you want? Mom and dad walked away in fear of being rejected by people. The Pharisees are responding in fear. Fear of losing what they have. Losing the world that they have. The control that they have. The only man in the story who's not afraid is who? The blind man. Formerly blind man. I should get his name correct. That's a little insulting. Why is he not afraid? He's the only one that has nothing to lose. He's got nothing to lose. The Pharisees have their whole world to lose. The parents have their reputation to lose. The blind man has nothing. He's had nothing his whole life. Until this moment, he's had nothing. He has nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose, you have nothing to be afraid of. I love this story. This is so much fun. The Pharisees lose their cool, of course, in verse 34. And they reply to this man, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. The one commentator I was writing said, in this action of throwing out, it reminds us of what the parents were afraid of. They were afraid of being thrown out. We don't know whether this formerly blind man was kicked out of the synagogue just this one moment, kicked out for weeks or months, or whether he was actually ejected and not welcome back in the synagogue ever again. We don't know what this cost him. But he was thrown out. Then Jesus re enters the story. Why isn't Jesus in the midst of the Pharisees? Why is Jesus waiting outside somewhere quietly? Anyone want to take a guess? Because at the end of chapter 8, what do they try to do to Jesus? They try to. Right? Look at the last verse of chapter 8. He claimed to be Yahweh before Abraham, and they tried to kill him. Jesus is now declaring his identity as God, and they have the right, if he is a blasphemer, to murder him by Moses' law. So Jesus is now the most wanted man in the state. Jesus is staying back from the Pharisees at this point. And when Jesus had heard they threw the man out from the Pharisees, finally Jesus got to see him again. And as I was reading this story this week, this is what it dawned on me. I don't think this man had ever seen Jesus. The story doesn't tell me he had ever seen Jesus. Jesus put mud on a blind man's eyes, sent him off to a pool, and a man came back to his community able to see. And he bumps into his neighbors and the people who had formerly known him, and they question him. I don't know if he had seen Jesus. So as he, excuse me, as he bumps into Jesus now, this might be their very first time where he actually gets to look at him and see him. And Jesus asks him this question. And the question is, do you believe in the son of? Son of what? The son of God or the son of man? Man, what does that title mean? Always ask these questions. So when you're reading through and Jesus declares his identity as son of man, son of man means two things I learned. It means the one sent from God, and it means the one whom God will use as judgment at the end of time. The son of man will be the separator between those welcomed into God's kingdom forever and those who are excluded. That's the role of the son of man. And the son of man is the one sent from God. He comes down from God. Jesus is using this title intentionally. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? The blind man asks. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. Right? The eyes being opened. You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. And the man's instant response is? Is worship. Do you notice how in the verse before he calls him sir? And now that Jesus has revealed himself, he calls him Lord. He's acknowledging him as son of man. Lord, master, God. And then he follows up. He doesn't just acknowledge his identity. He worships him. He acts upon his knowledge of his identity. He could have said, Lord, Lord. Nice to meet you. And left. No, he worships him. But what's the cost of worshiping Jesus as Lord? The parents just told us. It's losing everything. Worshiping Jesus as Lord. If he would have called him Rabbi, the Pharisees probably wouldn't have acted on that. To acknowledge him as Lord, the blind man was risking everything. Jesus gives us this incredible teaching in verse 39. He says, For judgment I've come into this world. Okay, that's the role of the Son of Man. So he's building on that. For judgment I've come into the world. You go, Darren, that doesn't line up John 3.16. He came because of love, not to judge the world. Okay, hold on. The role of the Son of Man is to separate those who are entering the kingdom and those who are not entering the kingdom. That's his role. So when Jesus says, I keep interrupting myself, for judgment I've come into the world. So that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. I'm going to separate the blind from the seeing. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and they asked, What, are we blind too? Are we the same as this blind man? What are we? And Jesus replies, If you were blind, watch the connection to sin. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Why? Because being able to see that Jesus is teaching about isn't a matter of your eyes functioning or not. Being able to see is a change of your heart, spiritually, understanding that Jesus is Lord, worshiping him. But for that to happen, you need to acknowledge the sin in your own life. And bring it before him and ask for his forgiveness of that sin. So when the Pharisees ask him this question, are we the blind people or are we the seeing people? Jesus goes, look at the sin. Look at the sin. Does the guilt of your sin remain or does the guilt of your sin not remain? That will tell you whether you're the seeing or the blind. It has nothing to do with this gentleman's eyes. When Bob was up here leading us in a time of prayer, referencing freedom from chapter 8. Know the truth and it'll set you free. And everyone goes, yes, I like that. Freedom sounds good. And then Jesus dies a few chapters later. And you go, no, 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 that's not what I want. I want freedom. Freedom doesn't mean dying. Jesus goes, you're wrong. You're very, very wrong. Freedom 100% means dying. What's well, not freeing about that. Because in Jesus, there's life. See, it just it confuses everyone. Because this Roman government had made being a Christian so incredibly painful, they're murdering Christians. Later, they're going to start crucifying Christians. Now, that's not fair. Jesus goes, but know the truth. It'll set you free. I'm the light of this world. I'm going to lead you out of darkness. All of you, you're in chains to sin. I'm going to break those chains. All of you are blind. I'm going to open all of your eyes. So as I'm reading this this week, I'm looking at the world around us And just like all of us, I'm wondering, how does my faith and how does the world that I live in today interact with this scripture? Because if Jesus is just an incredible character from 2,000 years ago, then this is a book of fairy tales, and it's hard to apply fairy tales to the world I live in. But if Jesus truly is the king that he claims to be, and if the world he entered into is just as broken and sinful as the world that I live in right now, then how does my relationship with Jesus make any difference now? What do we want in life? We're afraid of things. I am. Things upset us. We get angry with things. All people desire control. All people desire purpose. Security. They desire hope and peace. These are things that all people want and are willing to fight for and die for. You open up your phone, you turn on your computer when you get home, you are going to see posts and articles and pictures of people who are willing to do anything for control and peace and hope and purpose, anything for them. They'll do incredibly good things and incredibly cruel things. Because these things are worth fighting for. That's what they want. These are the things only offered in Jesus. Only offered in Jesus. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. What if the protest ends tomorrow? Well, because of Jesus, I can live. What if it doesn't end? Because of Jesus, I can live. But... Doesn't Darren want freedom? I've been free since I met him. Well, what if the government makes it illegal for us to meet in this room? Then we'll pray at home. Well, that's not fair. I know it's not fair. They were dying for their faith. You think it's not fair? It doesn't stop us. If our freedom is found outside of God, then your freedom can be stolen from you at any moment. But if your freedom and peace and purpose and identity, if all of those things are found in him and in him alone, and he's unchanging, then they'll never be taken from you, and you don't have to be afraid anymore. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid of losing this life, of being kicked out and rejected like the parents. Because I have Jesus, I have all that I need. Just like the Pharisees, though, there are things in my life that I want, that I'm willing to fight for, that I'm angry if I lose. That battle for control and that battle to get what I want, to say what I want, to not be told what to do. And the Pharisees were encountering that with Jesus. And he calls all people to a life of surrender, a life of denying yourself and dying to yourself. He called us to give that up. but Darren, I don't want to give up control. He's calling us to that. And finally, you get to the blind man formerly blind man has nothing to lose so he has nothing to fear has nothing to lose so he has nothing to fear why do you not need to wake up tomorrow afraid because you have nothing to lose if you have life in Jesus most people missed it a lot of people missed it Fear kept a lot of people away from it. Lies kept a lot of people away from it. But certain people found Jesus. If you actually look through the Gospel of John between chapter 1 and chapter 9, there's not that many people who have actually found faith in Jesus. Most people have either rejected him or have somewhat believed and then walked away. But the people that have found faith in Jesus have found everything. So as a Christian who's trying to live well in this, in this world that Jesus has placed me in, in this time that he's placed me in, I read stories like this beautiful one in chapter 9, and I think to myself, who am I in this story? Am I the Pharisee? Am I the parent? Am I the formerly blind man? Have I surrendered my sin to Jesus, or does my guilt remain? Am I acknowledging Jesus as the Son of Man, or am I trying to live my life as if I'm God and he's not? all of these different battles that i face all the time but because he lives i can face tomorrow i hope that as we go through the rest of the book of john into chapter 10 him being the good shepherd chapter 11 the resurrection of lazarus chapter 13 the washing of the feet and finally the the messiah on the cross I hope that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you ways that this story directly intervenes right now in your life. I was visiting with a friend of mine the other day at Tim Hortons. We met together after supper and we closed the place out. The nice lady had to ask us to get up and leave. We visited for so many hours. It was a, it was a really fun visit. And we were talking about how all people in this world strive for similar things. And I mentioned some of those already. As humans, we have this desire. We want control, and we want peace, we want security, we want purpose. And all humans will look for it. One pastor said, all humans are worshipers. They just don't know what they worship, but all humans are worshipers. You either worship a God outside of yourself, you worship a God within yourself, you worship something. Because humans were designed and programmed from our creation to be followers of something we do we always pursue something something is always our master we're always a slave to something so my prayer from my family is I try to bring little boys into a world that hates each other and a world that's attacking each other and a world that's not safe I need to teach them they have nothing to be afraid of when they find Jesus the federal government will never take that away from them and we can pray for our leaders. In conflict around the world, we'll never take that away from them. And if they ask dad, what happens if life gets scarier? What happens if life gets worse? We'll trust Jesus. We'll pursue him. We'll pray. And if he takes our lives, we'll live with him forever. And if he allows us to keep our lives, we'll live each day for him here. We're going to sing one more song together this morning. Let me pray for you as the uh, people leading us in singing come up on the stage. This is my prayer. Father in heaven, I pray for myself, Lord Jesus, and for my family that we would not be blind, that we would bear our sin before you and acknowledge our brokenness and our need for you as our king. Thank you, Father for the peace and security and freedom that we have in you that will never be stripped away. Thank you that the days of living for ourselves and worshiping ourselves, those days are over. We've placed you on the throne of our hearts. Your spirit has filled us and we are indwelt with you. You've tabernacled within us. And Father, every day from this day on, regardless of how many days we have left, we're gonna pursue you We're going to sing to you, we're going to pray to you, we are going to live life with you, and if this world falls apart around us, we have you, and it's everything that we need, and it's time for us to start living like that, not just saying it. So Jesus, I pray that you'd be everything to me, it needs to be real in my heart, it can't just be words that I say up front, it has to be real, and if it's not real, that's not right. Father, thank you for healing and transformation, for brand new life, and thank you that you are the light of the world and that I'll never have to walk in darkness again. I love you and I love this family. Be our guide. Show us the way home. I pray this in your powerful name. Amen. What an incredible